Hello everyone, Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, and it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com. That's Bazaar Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flipped off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangers. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone. Fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bazaar. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. <laughs> it's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. I'm Mick Malloy, and I'm joined by Titus O'Reilly, who's been whacking away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean this in the night. You know, um, away, yeah, the hard uh, at it. <laughs> they don't have hard Pounding at it, the sporting pavement. None of this sounds very good, <laughs> does it? <laughs> Doing all the heavy lifting once, <laughs> once again and bringing something to the table. What have, yeah, and I know I have no idea what you're this about. This one you don't even know today, the title. So like nothing, I'm a so. full of anticipation. You want to give a clue first, or are you just going to wait? It's on an it? Australian story, is it? And we're going into a sport we haven't done before. Because uh, you say, did say this, I want a sport you haven't done before the other day to me. Yes, on our bonus episode, nipple. No, no, not netball. Uh, I'm going to say squash. No. We should do squash, though. Some colourful characters in squash. Well, we had a big chat about this on one of our bonus episode. If you're not a member, this is the kind Bad of luck. this is the, the stuff out. you get. But we did have a chat about what sports we've done. Darts was the one you suggested. I think darts is presenting <laughs> It's itself. a rich tapestry darts. <laughs> Where do you start? We got three episodes out of table tennis. Yes. So, you know. We got three episodes. We got two episodes, I think, out of billiards. We've had a couple on billiards. We've had a, yeah. Uh, Handball. No. (laughs) What about archery? Close. It's the javelin. The javelin? Yeah. An underrated. I was never going to get that. Archery's close. When you think of javelin, what do you think of? Well, see, I think of the Russians. Yes, tell the story. Yeah, yeah. So it was the Moscow Olympics. It's such a good story. What happened is it was held in this huge, I think it was called Lenin Stadium or something, and what happened is, the non-Russian competitors would get up and throw the javelin and they'd, uh, you know, get it recorded or whatever and they would all doing fairly well. And then the Russian throwers would get up yeah. and the attendants in the stadium would rush and open these two huge doors at one end of the at stadium and let the wind come in and a, a massive draft would come in <laughs> and then they would throw it. And then a win by forty minutes. Would, yeah, and then they would quickly run and shut the. Door. How good is that? Yeah, and it's and then the winning stuff. one didn't land. You know, so a javelin has to land point down. Yeah. It can't land just flat. It has to actually stick yes. in the ground to count. And the last one that won didn't. But they just the judges just went, no, that's fine. So it, that's one. I know you're shocked at the Russians cheating. I can't believe it. They have no history of systematic <laughs> cheating. Here's the other one that I remember. Officially copped one right in the chest. 
Mm. That one, you've got one job when you're an official at Javelin, that's not to get hit by the Javelin. I know. And someone's <laughs> hoinked it. It's just stuck out, didn't it? Oh, he was yeah. standing there and the thing went, and yeah. it, it was vibrating. You realise it was a spear. It's a proper it's a spear. spear. That's the guy where got it comes sp- from. Got a spear at the Olympics. Yeah. We did this in the uh, 1900 Paris Olympics where they built the discus and javelin thing. <laughs> they put the crowd too close to the on the side. So- <laughs> rather than behind the throws, right. they put them on the side. Oh, and so boy. javelins and discus are going into the crowd. It's like when you watch the golf and you go, yeah. I know they're good golfers, but seriously, he's got a one wood in his hand. Why are you that close? And, and there's a gap of about nine feet on either side of that tee box. Yeah, yeah. You just... Feel that you're putting a lot of faith in a lot of guys. faith into Robert Allenby goes up. I move. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, so javelin, all this will be good. Yeah, so we're starting in the 14th of December 1941 in Adelaide, South Australia. Reginald James Spears, S P I E R S, but Spears, yes. perfect name for javelin. For javelin. That's, that's what he took up. He uh, is born in South Australia, he has a fairly normal upbringing, um, but he shows talent as an athlete early on, even as a teenager, in a whole range of sports, yeah. he plays everything. But he's big and he's strong. He ends up in his teenage years six foot five. Sure. So big guy. Is there an ath- is there a build for you? I think tall and powerful. Strong. So sh- not your shot putter. Not your shot, your shot putter, which is uh, a little squat and <laughs> wide. Okay. And you need to have a bit of speed as well too, don't you? Just yeah. So they got to, you know, but I think the height helps as well. Like I think it's – and so he was a big, tough, athletic guy. How well are they trained? Just chucking stuff? I think it's just throwing spears. Isn't so they – what would they – in the gym? Would they be I imagine they're doing – yeah, I imagine or... they're doing weights and they're – I mean their arms have got to be pretty strong, right? And then it's got to be technique and all that. I, look, once again, I haven't researched how to be a javelin thrower. <laughs> yeah, I just thought you might have. <laughs> Factored that in. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm feeling great shame right now. <laughs> now, as a teenager, he, he, after playing a lot of sports, he takes up javelin and almost immediately he becomes, while well, still a teenager, one of the best javelin throwers <sighs> in Australia. Why did he choose javelin? I think they were just getting him to do, like, you know, remember when you're at school and they'd go, today in PE you're doing this, or if you're doing a little athletics or something, they go. And you see what you've got an aptitude for. And then I think he just was, like, from day one, he just, like, threw it 10 times further than anyone else. And and they sort of went, you might have a future in this. Get him off to Javelin Uni. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Javelin High. That's where he went. Okay. So they've earmarked him from an early age. I also think there's like five people that do javelins in Australia. So you're probably going to be up there. No, the but pole vault. I always wonder at what point someone goes, yeah, you know what? That's I reckon I'd be good at that. Oh, yeah. You know, what, what are you? It's like a you know, it's like a racehorse that can't race. So they put it over the hurdles and you go, well, you're doing high jump. You know, mate, get the guy a pole. Get, get him a get pole. Get him a pole. Let's see what he's. But at some point, someone has to make a big decision that came as from, an athlete to yeah. go, you know what? That's me. I'm going to tick that box. You know, yeah, of all the sports I'd like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to vault things. Because <laughs> that's come from getting over rivers and stuff, isn't it? That must have been where that all started. A moat, a moat. full of crocodiles. <laughs> or a moat full of, yeah, I've got to get to the castle. I How feel like we're having trouble it? getting into this episode. <laughs> Now, I'm just asking some questions. <laughs> I'm asking the questions that our listeners are. You are. You are the voice of the listeners. Takes up being a javelin thrower and he becomes almost immediately one of the best javelin throwers in Australia. Still a teenager. 
the 1960-61 season, he is third at the Australian Track and Field Championships and second in 1961-62. So he's very good. So good that he ends up qualifying for the 1962 Commonwealth Games, which were in Perth, and he he comes fifth overall, still as a young guy. Um, Fifth overall, he has a throw of 69.70 metres. So the top ones now get up to about 100 or a bit less. So he's very good. Now, during this competition, he meets and befriends a British javelin champion and reckon holder, a guy called John McSorley. And he is an English guy. They get along really well. Both enjoy hanging out, having a good time, and so keep in touch. Spears then continues to compete the next year, but he doesn't quite do enough to make this year. He doesn't have a great year. He has a bit of an injury and a few issues. And so he fails to qualify for the 64 Australian Olympic team. Going to miss out. So he decides, what I'll do, the only chance I've got, because we're entering winter here in Australia, is if I go to England, I can compete in their summer. And hopefully, if I get a big enough throw over there in a proper competition, I can still get sneak into the Olympic team. Like, well, obviously, they'd have the hard rules. I thought they had these hard, I don't fast, think that was sporting quite, rules. And this was his kind of idea. I don't know whether it really had much of a chance of success or not, but this was his idea. Right, right. You gotta remember his family's not rich or anything, so he decides he works his passage to the England on an oil tanker, right? So he's like having to work on the oil tanker to get there. Yeah. Docks there uh, in Newcastle on Tyne and he has to sell a razor to afford the train ticket to get to London. Wow. And then he shows up at John McSorley's doorstep, the British chaplain man he met at the Commonwealth Games. Hadn't seen him since the Common Games a few years before. Yeah. And says, I'm here. Right. I'm here to train. I'm here to and can I stay, I stay here? And so he's got no money. He's got a javelin on one shoulder, <laughs> he's his suitcase in the other hand. Yeah, that's it. No money. He's got. He had yeah. to sell his razor to get to the. Yeah. And so, but McSorley says no problem at all. So he starts training with McSorley at St Mary's College in Twickenham, and he passes himself off as a student there. He's not. Mm. And then the organisers of the AAA Championships in England allow him to compete as a guest and. The problem for both him and McSorley is they've both got carrying injuries. They both don't throw well and they both miss out on the Olympics. They're not going to make it, right? So he takes up an airport job working in the export cargo area for Air France while he's figuring out what to do next. He needs money. In London? In London at Heathrow. He's trying to figure out what to do. He's saving up money for his return trip back to England. And then one day his wallet's stolen and it's got all his savings. And he realizes I've got no money and I can't get home and I'm stuck here in England. Yeah. I can't afford a flight home or anything. Yeah. So he's left his wife and daughter back in Adelaide. He's missed out on the Olympics. He's got no money and he's starting to really miss Jeez. them. And his daughter's birthday's coming up in about uh, he's a in month. A bit of a pickle. So he's in a real pickle. And so he and McSorley go for a drink at Twickenham's Crown Pub in October 1964. And he says to McSorley, I've come up with a plan to get home. And he says, well, you got no money. How are you going to do that? And he goes, you know, we work at the export cargo section at Air France. Oh, good Lord. I've noticed you can send a package home and you don't have to pay. It's paid cash on delivery. <laughs> no. And I've seen animals go through. Oh, my God. And I think. <laughs> no. And I think. Uh, I could mail myself home. 
<laughs> brilliant. And McSorley goes, "What are you? What are you talking about? This is ridiculous." But they're having drinks and they're having fun, and they start. What hotel are Twicking them at the Crown Pub. I reckon right. there are a few jars. There in, are a few so jars. This in. is the plan. Yeah. And McSorley's <laughs> also like he's a bit of a hippie and a athlete. Right? He didn't he, reject the idea outright. Oh, well, McSorley says, I don't think you should do it. But Reg Spears is a bit of an athlete and a hippie. He likes to smoke a lot of marijuana. He likes, to, you know, and he's very lateral at his thinking. So really? he, he's kind of the guy to come up with this idea. McSorley, the English guy, just thinks, no, this isn't going to work. But they start laughing about the idea and stuff and they start talking about it. He says to McSorley, look, working at Air France on the cargo part, I know the size of the box you can send, how big a box you can send. I know that you can send it cash on delivery so we don't have to pay anything. It's more expensive to send the cargo than it would be for a ticket. But he says the benefit is because McSorley says, what are you going to do in terms of paying? He goes, and that's the thing. When I arrive in Australia, I wait, pop out of the box, we all have a big disappear, laugh. and they'll just find an empty box with a addre- fake address on it. Uh, and who's going to pay? There's no one to pay, but also I'll be gone. So he's broken out of this box. Yeah. So he says, so I've thought this out. I know what to do. Yeah, I've he says, through. the journey's going to take 63 hours in the box across three continents. But he says, I'm not frightened of the dark, so I'm happy to do this. McSorley's going, I think this is bonkers. Can I, can I ask, <laughs> does he have to get get off and get on another plane or is it just all one flight? Three uh, No, it? it's moving planes. <laughs> so he knows that in the... <laughs> oh, this is great. He knows in the 1960s cargo holds of all these commercial airliners are pressurised and heated. Now, now they don't do that as much. They'll pressurise some or they'll have it at quite cold. Mm. They don't bother to heat them, but... At this time, you could kind of get away with this a little bit. you got to remember, we're in the 60s. Airline security is nowhere, nowhere near, near what it is now. Like, nowhere, both for passengers. There'd be and, no shoe bombers in the Yeah, in it the was 60s. like, you know, yeah, it was. No, so anyway, Spears works out, well, I'll be able to breathe inside the plane. The air outside cabin would pressurize. I won't be able to freeze to death because I hate it. So I've worked that bit out. And he says to McSorley, it needs to be five foot by three foot by two and a half foot, which is 1.5 metres by about a metre by a bit less than a metre. So it's quite a big box, but enough to have a man inside it, right? Yeah. Spears says to McSorley, could you build this box? Because McSorley's got a bit of knowledge in woodworking sure. and stuff. And McSorley said, I knew Reg and I thought, he's going to do it regardless. So if he's going to do it, I better make him a box that at least it's going to get him there. Yeah. So they start working out how to do this. <laughs> they work out the crate size that is on it that he can sit up straight-legged, so sit up but with his legs straight, yeah. or lie on his back with his knees bent. They're the only two ways wow. he can sort for of... For 63 hours. For 63 hours. They work out that it's going to need straps and a belt to keep him in place when the box is moved by airport staff, so he kind of has to be strapped in. He's very, very solid. So if they tip him upside down, he can he doesn't just He'll go be flying around. around. Yeah. They also work out that it'd be good if it could be opened at both ends, so he could get up and move around once in the air. So I should open it once well, he's in the that, cargo. That's what they they sort of work out. Well, if we we open up each end, you can get out, have a stretch, stretch the legs, <laughs> do whatever you need to do. <laughs> open some other parcels. <laughs> See what's around. 
They also leave a, they call it at the time because of a currency, a penny width gap. So sort of like, you know, 20 cent coin yeah, or something yeah. like that gaps in some of the timbers for ventilation and so he can see out a little bit, right? Yeah. They sort of work that it's like out. like a peephole. So is that for breathing? That's for breathing mainly and he can see vaguely if he's off a plane or in a yeah. plane a bit, you know. So they work out all of that. So while the box is being built, they then just think, what are we going to put on the label on the box? What are we going to say the box is for? And so they're once again at the pub <laughs> and they're chatting. Yeah. One of them says, oh, I think it should be something for shoes, like some product, like okay. maybe a chemical or something for shoes. You know, because oh, they're going for something you, fragile so you can put well, a fragile. Put fra- they they, they do, do put they do. fragile and they also put this way up. <laughs> so, so something to do with shoes. Something they, they throw around a bunch of, and one of them's like something like, an emulsion or something, and then the other one goes, well, like a plastic emulsion, and they're like, one of them goes, is that even a thing? <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So they go, yeah, let's put plastic emulsion. Okay. So it's plastic emulsion for shoes. They work out they're going to send the box of plastic emulsion from the Southern Chemical Company at 87 Gloucester Road in London, which was a big industrial park yeah, at the time. But did exist? Did exist. Well, the street the exists. Street exists. The, the, the Southern Chemical Company did not exist. Yeah. And they were going to send it to the Supreme Shoe Company in Perth, Australia, because the plane was landing in Australia in right. Perth. That's so that's the, where he plans to get off the plane. Yeah, he's going to. He's, he's not going get off on to Adelaide. Perth. The flight doesn't fly to Adelaide in these days. Yeah. I think it flew to Perth, and that was it. Reg takes this, goes down to the airport where he works. You know, he works in the cargo area. The box is still being ling, but he's got all the paperwork. He's filled it all out. And he goes in, there's a clerk there. And the clerk says, right, sir, and says, like, give me a look at your paperwork. And they begin to read the forms. He begins to read it back to him, going, is this correct? Is this correct? He's like, yep, yep. And Reg is trying to act cool and, like, this is just something he does every day. And he goes, look, can we get paid cash on delivery? We've had problems with blah, blah, blah and all this yeah. sort of stuff. So he does all that sort of stuff. And I guess, yep, sure, sure. And he can't believe how easy it is. <laughs> and then the guy says to him, so your company wants to send a crate of plastic emulsion to Perth. Addresses are clear. He says, plastic emulsion, I don't think I've heard of that one before. And Reg says, oh, that surprises me. It's been around a long time. (laughs) (laughs) So the box is now built. They have the paperwork. And on Saturday, October 17th, 1964, McSorley and two of his friends. This is is the most harebrained scheme (laughs) I've ever heard of. They load the box containing spears onto a van and they drive it to the terminal at Heathrow Airport. See, the journey's begun. He's begun. He's already in the box. I would have got into the box at the last possible minute. Yeah, no, they unload him and the clerk weighs the box. McSorley hands him over all the freight forms and they all start checking stuff up. It's just in the form where there's a counter, you know, and McSorley says, do you need us to do anything? He said, no, nah, just leave it there. We'll get rid of it in a sec. We'll get a forklift in and move it. Mm. And he's like, okay. And he sort of pats the box and goes, all right, well, we'll see you later. <laughs> he takes off. Now, Reg is in the box and he's got a small bag. Reg is in the box. Yeah. He's got a small bag with, this is what's in it. Well, he's, he's got two tins of spaghetti. <laughs> You know, that pre-star, you know. A bottle of fruit juice, a bar of chocolate, a packet of biscuits, fruit gums, a torch, a blanket, a pillow, two plastic bottles, one for water, one for urine. It's only 63 hours. A suit and his passport. What's the suit for? His plans at the other end to get out, put the suit on, 
He's in track. Oh, he's in track. Pa- be, he's in track to. pants and a t-shirt because yeah, he wants to be comfort. comfort. Yeah, but he's got a suit. So when it's like he's in first class, do you think you, you get your <laughs> yeah the pajamas? pajamas. <laughs> now you also made sure he hadn't eaten for a week before the journey to slow his bodily Good functions call. as much as possible. So because I was going to say is yeah, that's the main. That's that, a, that's a big issue. That one isn't it? Snapping one off. <laughs> so he's lying there, and eventually he's picked up by a forklift. What? And he's moved into a warehouse and he's put down. He realizes he's there. He waits till the warehouse has gone quiet for the night and they've locked the door and shut it all and everything. And he unscrews because he's kind of got this widget that he can turn yeah. these wooden things and it all so open. one panel open. And he up. can open either the top or the bottom because they figured out what if you get yeah, locked on in on one side, side or something. And so he gets out and he's like, you know, can stretch at night and stuff and he's waiting. Unbelievable. And it's like Ocean's Eleven. He's standing there and then he starts to see smoke coming under the door of the warehouse. And he's like, oh, my God, the place is on fire and I'm stuck here amongst all these wooden boxes. I'm going to die and I can't get out. Didn't factor that one in. And then he realises. Smith or wherever they were. <laughs> it's right. Then he realises it's fog. And he's like, oh, okay, it's fog. But then he realises, well, it's fog. That means planes can't take off. <laughs> Oh, no. And it was true because London was covered in it and the airport was effectively shut down. Uh, so he had to wait. But in the day, everyone comes back to work, even though planes aren't flying to do stuff. So he has to get back in the box during the day for the whole day wow. and be in his uncomfortable position. Even though nothing's happening. Yeah. And he's got a watch with him, so he keeps track of time. And it's 28 hours go by. So his already 63-hour trip has now become a 91-hour trip. <laughs> And finally, after 28 hours, finally he's in the box and a forklift comes along, picks him up <laughs> and takes him out to a plane and puts him in the cargo hold and he grabbed holding the scraps oh, of the belt and suddenly he's in the air for a short trip to Paris he's got to go to Paris first. First leg. First leg. So the minute the plane's taken off and sort of settled and he gets out of the box and he's dying for a leak. He'd eaten one of the spaghetti, so he wheezes in the tin. He's an idiot. He's gone too early on the spaghetti. <laughs> so he wheezes in the empty spaghetti tin. Because yeah. it's a very short flight, London to Paris. Yeah, it's it starts descending. Yeah, it starts descending, and he's something as well. So he jumps back in the box, puts his belt back on, gets the straps on, locks the thing. And then suddenly realizes I left the bucket of the bucket of piss. the bucket of urine on top of another box. That's got to be odd when they get. It's to... just sitting there. So he says they land and he's in the box. The French baggage handlers come out in Paris. They go into the plane and they start unloading the stuff that's not going on to the next thing. Yeah. And they find this can full of <laughs> urine and think. That the people in the baggage handlers in, in England in England and put it on as a like horrible joke, and he says, "Proceed to say the worst things about the English that you've ever heard." <laughs> he started, a and war. he's just like in there going, "Oh no!" So you know, who knows? They might still be sending bottles of piss back between each other to this day. <laughs> so finally, then the plane is a short stop in France. Next stops a long flight. It's to Bombay, which is now Mumbai, oh, but it was called Bombay in the day. And a long flight, he's getting out of the thing when he can. Bit ran. over it by now? He's starting to get over it. There's not a lot of food. He's pretty hungry. He's trying to ration his he's food. He's still got a chocolate bar. He's got a chocolate bar and his fruit gums and this another can of spaghetti. Surely there's another box containing food. Well, Has no, no I think that? it's all pretty. He looks. He says it's all pretty 
like locked down. It's crates of freight and stuff. It's not like, you know, anything particularly good at this one. So so it's a long flight and he's very uncomfortable and he's been jostled around and it's not good. He can't sleep really, you know. He, he's scared to sleep outside the box. So he has to sleep in it and he says that's not comfortable. So hey, boo-hoo. Yeah, ex- this yeah, is this his is idea. your idea, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he finally lands in Bombay and he this time he's remembered to keep the empty urine can with him and he's managed to get a bit of plastic and a rubber band and put it over to stop it. So it's, he's got a, another can now full of urine. But he's put plastic over right. it and a rubber band around it but still <laughs> it can leak if it tips. Yeah. As they take him off the plane in Mumbai, he's holding the can with the urine having to balance it and the forklift almost drops him (laughs) and he's like, oh, God. So anyway, he gets out into Mumbai and the forklift carries him, moves him around and puts him down on the tarmac Mm. but upside down. So he's now dangling (laughs) upside down carrying a can of Mm. urine. Trying to balance it so it doesn't spill on him. And it's Mumbai, so he's in the direct sunlight. They haven't put him in a warehouse (laughs) and it's humid and boiling hot. Don't tell me he's going to have to drink his own urine. (laughs) Well, he's more like, and he, so it's, he says it's like a sauna and he thinks, what's going on? And he realizes that they're all just having lunch. And to them, it's just cargo, right? They don't care. They've just, they don't care. They don't care. They've just put it there. So he's, (laughs) so for hours, He's lo- ups- upside, down. upside down in the boiling hot. So he starts to take all his clothes off because it's so hot. Well, he He's like, I've got to take. So he takes off all his clothes. He's nude mm. completely, <laughs> hanging upside down. And then he realizes two guys are sitting on his box. On his box. Having lunch, chatting while he hangs With naked upside no down, sweat naked not- man upside down holding a can of urine under wow. them. So he's going, this is, and he thinks, I'm going to die. And he goes, I almost died. It was like dehydration and all yeah. that. It's really grim for him. Finally, they turn him over and he's like, okay. And he just says in his head, has, imagine they find me now, naked man in box. <laughs> like in, in what Bombay. would they do? Who knows? There's a lot of explaining. Bombay? Like There's a lot of explaining. So finally, they move him around the right way and they finally put him under another aircraft and he's like, that this Good was to almost, go. this almost killed him. Like, What's his next like, stop? Next, stop. next stop's a fuel stop in Singapore. Oh, it's going to get hot. Yeah, but he doesn't have to get out. Okay. So the plane stops. It's a fuel stop. It's all going fairly well. He has to get back in the box while they stop, but then he can get back yeah. out again. Finally, 63 hours, 21,000 kilometers or 13,000 miles later, Spears touches down in Perth. Jeez. He says well done. when it touches down, the cargo hold opens and he hears the Australian baggage handlers swearing about how loud he's, the size of the crate is and how heavy it is. <laughs> and he just knew he was home because of the excess. Yeah. And he's like, thank God. Is he still naked or has he popped the he's suit popped on the yet? Clo- no, he's popped the clothes on but not, the, not, the, not suit. the suit yet, right? His box is offloaded and it's put in something called a bond shed, which is where the cargo goes that people have to come and pay come for. Come and pay for, yeah. So he's in there. And they put me in the shed. He said, the minute they left, I got out of the shed, got out of the box, yeah. looked around, and there was cartons of beer in there. Oh. And he said, I don't normally drink a lot of beer because he's normally a smokes marijuana. Yeah. He gets out and drinks a bunch of them and just was like, <laughs> great. He then looks around and he can't 
tries to figure out how to get out of the bond shed. Yeah. And he realizes there's a padlock. That Does he chain. put the box back together? Like so it looks like the He just puts like... the he puts the lid back on it, he gets into his suit, leaves rubbish and stuff in the box. Yeah. Nothing that can identify him, but he's got his passport and a few other bits sure. and pieces and that's it, right? And he has to figure out how to get out of the shed. And he can open the door a little bit, but then you can see it's chained on the outside mm. with a padlock. So he looks around and he sees this big luckily there's a workbench and there's a huge bunch of bolt cutters. Yeah. So he gets them, cuts the padlock. Yes. Sneaks along a bunch of various there's outbuildings and stuff. And I don't I just think the security at the time is nothing like of course. now, right? But this like, is, surely he's home and hosed now because he's out of the shed, he's out of the box. Well, he's going he, around a bunch of You can make up an excuse as to how you end up there. Yeah, I'm lost. He hides behind a bunch of um warehouses and then he sees an ANSET plane. For those overseas, that's an old Australian, Australian airline. airline that doesn't exist anymore. And he sees the passengers start to disembark. And this is when passengers would disembark on the tarmac, yeah, you know, the right. stairs would be bored. So he could just join the queue. So he just slowly sneaks up and joins the queue. This is gold. Gets out his passport and goes through immigration. Because this is where there's not computers, right? They're not even looking at half. Yeah, they just yeah, check no. you've got an Australian passport. Right. He's got one and he walks through. And he gets outside, hitchhikes across the Nullarbor. Yeah. Gets to a point where he can't get, and a priest gives him the money for his rail trip for the rest of the way home. And he finally arrives in Adelaide in back in time for his daughter's birthday. He has trouble convincing his wife that the story is true. She doesn't believe him. <laughs> She's like, you just flew home. Has he rang like, his mate? So one week after he's left, John back in London starting to worry because he hasn't heard. Hasn't heard. And he has visions that he's dead in some yeah, yeah. warehouse or dying. And yeah, and you can't get in contact with him. And this is before. This yeah, is like, there's not internet. It's telegram. It's, like, bro, it's so telegram yeah. and phone, but, you know, if you can't. He's got a good friend, James Coote, who's a sports correspondent at the Daily Telegraph in London. And he rings him and says, oh, hi, it's John McSorley. He says, oh, how are you going? How's the javelin going? And he's like, Oh, yeah, um, I'm injured at the moment, but I've got to tell you this story. I'm in a bit of trouble. I helped a mate fly back to Australia in a box <laughs> and I haven't heard of him. And he can't believe him. He says, I do believe it because I've met Reg Spears before and he's a man who would do something like <laughs> yes. this. And John says, well, I'm only contacting you because I think he might be dead somewhere and I'm panicked. And he says, well, look, I've got a contact in Adelaide, a guy called Greg Denton who's a journalist that I met mm. overseas. I met him in the Commonwealth Games too. I will call him and get him to look into it. <laughs> so Greg Denton the next morning wakes up. He's having a shower. He has to get out of the shower, answer the phone. And it's James Coote saying, he's saying, oh, Cootie, this better be good. What is it? It's very early in the morning. And then he's like, oh, my God, that is unbelievable. Only Spears could carry off something like that. Yeah, I know well. He's an Adelaide man. He said, wait till the airport people find out. That'll be one hell of a bloody raucous. <laughs> and so he says, I'll track him down. Yeah. So he tracks Reg down and now the story is suddenly front page news <laughs> in both England and oh, Australia, wow. right? Reg says, I've never seen anything like it. It scared the hell out of my mother with the whole street blocked with media uh. and it would go on for weeks. It was pretty wild. So I got a telegram from a renowned Australian politician. He doesn't say who. And it said, a gallon effort by a real Aussie. Here's five quid. <laughs> It got so big that the international press were all over him and he got inundated with interview requests and even off advertising opportunities. <laughs> all right. 
Oh, this is great. A few days after, so all this news breaks and a custom officer is sent to find out. The custom officer's name is Jenkins and he is standing at the front of the cargo shed in Perth Airport and he's being told, find out if there's any truth in this bloke's yes. story. Reg is on the front page of the paper with his daughter and wife yeah. and it says together at last and all this <laughs> sort of stuff, you know. And so, so he opens the the Bond uh, warehouse and he's got two other guys with him and he says, right, we're going to go through and find this. And he goes, I almost hope we don't find it because if we find this box and prove this guy's story, there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> so they go through and the guy's going, what are we looking for? And he goes, well, I imagine it's a big bloody box. <laughs> Just go look for a big bloody box. Finally, this one of the young workers yells out, he's down the back of the warehouse, I think I've found it. And they go down there. And there's he's like, it's big enough. He climbs in the show, it's big and goes, and there's stuff in here, there's a bottle of something and tins of moldy food and they completely stink. So in the end, the airline, it comes confirmed. out that this is confirmed and the airline, they don't charge him. They go, <laughs> they know a good thing, right? Yeah, he's a national hero. He goes back to competitive athletics straight afterwards, but he's completely famous. Mm. And he continues on. He eventually, he and his wife, Marion, they have a second daughter, but they eventually separate not long afterwards. And he retires from athletics in 1979. It's this point he sort of lives in a house. He's earning money off advertisements and a yeah, few yeah. appearances and stuff. But it's the appeal of the story is waning, sure. you know. Like there's only so many times yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to hire a guy to do an ad who was famous yeah. 10 years ago. So one night he decides he'd read that you could – you know, an athlete should keep his mind, exercise his mind and his body. So he goes and does evening classes at a local high school. He's in Adelaide still and he meets a woman named Annie Hayes and she sort of becomes the love of his life. Living together, they've got a bunch of friends but they don't have much money and it's starting to look pretty grim for right. them. They don't know how they're going to be. So Reg has a plan <laughs> and the plan Does is <laughs> the plan is this time is to smuggle something again, but this time not people. This time it's hashish, so the oh, compressed marijuana. So he gets a group of six mates together and they're all couples, so three couples, and they have this plan. Pair number one would be given instructions and it would be a man or woman always to escape. They would fly to Bombay and they would be in a hotel and someone would come to the hotel and without them seeing them, they would drop off the drugs. Yeah. They would then get on it and they would put it in a hollowed out boombox or, you know, rate, big radio. Sure. Get onto the plane at the Bombay airport, take it and carry on and then put it in the luggage locker above. Yes. And then they would land in Melbourne and this is where Reg came up with the next bit. They would leave it in the overhead locker. Then the next couple would get on and they'd have bought the same seats on a flight to New Zealand in the same plane. Yes. Because it went on to that. They would get in and then they would take the boombox off in New Zealand, yes. hand it to another couple who would then fly it back to Melbourne or Sydney. Good Lord. And they learnt that if the flight was coming from Bombay, the feds or the would be all over thing, it. But, but uh, from New Zealand, they barely check it. So that was these passengers looked like they'd just been to New Zealand and back because it was just left in what the overhead locker. What could go wrong? So this was his plan, and it works. Mm. And it's the New Zealand thing is a stroke of genius, and no one is noticing, except one of the women that's working on it hadn't told her boyfriend what she was up to. 
and he starts to think my girlfriend is having an affair with Reg. Right. Because she's always popping around in his house and then goes missing. Yeah, yeah. So he follows her one day and is sitting outside the cafe and she meets Reg. She's actually telling him, I want out of this. Yeah. And then Reg says, fine, have out of it. She says, no worries. It's not compulsory. You can leave. But this other guy thinks, well, this just confirms my worst fears. So he goes back and goes through her room and finds a book with all dates and times and plane tickets and all this stuff and takes him a while and he can't figure out, like, is she flying around with Reg doing what's yeah. – and then it clicks. Reg is a bit of a hippie. That's what they're up to. They're running drugs. So he takes the book to the police to get revenge because he thinks oh, they're having a fair. This is not good. They get sentenced. The Australian Federal Police come in and arrest them all. And they get sentenced. And once again, he's in the papers everywhere. <laughs> right? He's charged with trying to import $1.2 million of cannabis resin into Australia. Yes. He pleads guilty and he's sentenced to 10 years and, and he gets six. So wow. he says, I've got no intention of going to jail. <laughs> <laughs> so he Has he got another plan? He's got another plan. He and Annie and another member of the group, Nico Alexopoulos, they decide we're going to do a runner. So they get fake passports. They use people's names they know. This is identity theft back when I think it was a lot yeah, easier to sure. own. Reg becomes Bruce Pennington. <laughs> Annie becomes Sonia Priestley. And Nico gets a name like Jake, which he says does not work for a Greek guy, but we'll just stick with it. <laughs> and they flee. They manage to get on a plane and they end up back in... India. They land in India. This federal police notify Interpol and they're now, but they don't know what names they flew out yes. on. So they are now completely on the run and they're in Bombay and they get the paper one day and it says top athlete skips bail on drug charges. So now they are complete fugitives on the run. Mm. So they lay low for a while and they need to make money and Reg makes friends with a guy called Kurt Danson and they come up with a plan to make some money. Yes. Nico at this point decides, I might leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. So he leaves. January 982, and they come up with another idea. And this idea is uh, they're in Kochi, and this is where the big port is in India, right? Big cargo ships. And Reg's plan and Kirk's plan is to scuba dive down below the hull of a cargo oh, ship. Jesus. <laughs> and weld a metal box full of drugs onto the bottom. Uh, these guys are high on their own supply, <laughs> I reckon. And it's heading to Australia and then someone at the other end will swim down and take it off. Wow. And that's how they're going so to do it. So they've attached it to the hull. This is their plan. Kurt gets work at a boat shop in India and, <laughs> and they work out, he says to the boss one day, can I borrow some of the scuba diving gear and stuff because I'm fixing a mate's boat? And the guy goes, yeah, absolutely, just bring it back on Monday. So they got all the underwater welding equipment and everything, right? So they go out to the port. They identify the ship they're going to target and they get into the water and it's night time. Mm. So it's pitch black and they're going along and they realize that suddenly there's this strong current that they're swimming against and they're like, oh, this isn't good. <laughs> and they can't find the ship because once in the water, it's a lot harder to tell what ship's sure. what. But they finally figure it out. They get there and they're both exhausted and Reg says, I'm going to dive down and have a look at the where we're going to weld this on. And Kurt's up above and he's not as fit as Reg and he's having trouble stopping the box and himself from drifting in the current. Yeah. So he's like really struggling up there. And finally Reg comes back and, he, and Kurt says, I'm exhausted. And Reg says, we've got to do this anyway. We've got to get it done. Yeah. So they dive down but suddenly they realise that this is an airtight box that they've put it in. 
still has air in it. It's, it's not gonna. So when they go underwater, the they're like you know, like like yeah. a foam thing you put underwater no, and let impossible. go, and it shoots back up. Yeah. So it starts doing that. <laughs> so they're both trying to like scuba dive down with this box. Well, they impossible. get they get halfway down, and then they they it goes. <laughs> So they, they're struggling with this and it's all like a complete mess. And then suddenly they hear this boat because it's making a lot of noise when it splashes to the uh. surface. There's spotlights on them and this boat pulls up and there's three Indian uh, port police on it and they're all laughing and they pull them out of the water and they realise these three guards are drunk and they've got guns and everything and they go, this is not good, we're in trouble. Uh. And the police are, are talking but they can't understand what they're saying. And they drive Reg and Kurt, and Reg and Kurt are like, "We're done for. We got they got boxes in the boat and everything." They drive up to the uh, the jetty, and the police say, "Get out!" And they get out. The police drive off, and Reg and Kurt realize that the police just have thought they're idiot tourists they're idiots. and just have let them go. So Reg says, "We know what to do. Get the air out, then seal it." We can do this. We've learned a lot tonight. Sure. We can do it tomorrow night. Kurt's like, really? Do we think? <laughs> is, this, is this going good? Right? So they go back to their separate, they're in a motel stay and they go back to their separate rooms. And the next morning, Kurt's forgotten to put up a do not disturb sign on the thing. Yeah. So a cleaning lady comes in and she sees two wet diving suits on the floor. Yeah. And then Kurt passed out with sand all over the bed. Yes. And he'd cut his hand on the box the night before and hadn't right. covered up. So there's sand and blood everywhere. And he's so tired he's from the swim right. the night before, he's not moving. So she rings and says, gets the manager and the police burst in and they see it and think, US diving suits, Port City, this guy's a US spy. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, they take him off and interview him and through yeah. a cop, like they're going, we know what you did. And he's like going... <laughs> And he's like trying to night, and they finally say, you know, do you know the penalty for espionage in India? Oh. And he suddenly goes, whoa, 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 <laughs> and dobs Reg in. So Reg is caught and uh, oh, it's 83. He's now imprisoned in India. But they don't know he's Reg Spears. <laughs> right? Gosh. And Annie is arrested too. Annie gets out after six months. But Reg is there for a year in Indian prison. And he makes friends with a lot of the mafia. Of course he Because he's the guy that everyone likes yeah. for some reason. He's got a good backstory. He's got a good backstory too. Finally, he gets let out on bail for the court hearing. Yes. And he and Annie skip to Goa mm. on the run. And they get new passports. And Reg decides he wants to be a Frenchman named Patrick Albert Claude Ledeau. <laughs> Even though he doesn't speak a word of French. <laughs> Annie just decides to settle on a Annette Joyce Chamberlain, so they've now got a third identity. Yes. So finally they get there and they manage to fly out of Goa and get to Mombasa in Kenya. They're tracking the Cape Town. That doesn't work. They end up in Sri Lanka. In 1984 they're arrested. This time they're trying to smuggle heroin. It's gotten worse, but this is dear, the come home. Dear. So he's completely gone yeah. off the rails. He gets sentenced to death in Sri Lanka. Oh, dear. But a deal's done at the last minute with the Australian government. He gets sent home and he can actually serve five years in Adelaide in prison, which he does. Maybe a death sentence is not, <laughs> was it five is years the, in Adelaide or death sentence. Annie has disappeared. They don't know where Annie's gone and she turns herself in in 1994 to an Australian embassy in Germany and says, 
you got me. I'm sick of being on the run. I want to come in from the cold. I want to come in from the cold. Her lawyer gets her a six-month prison sentence after the judge accepts a psychological report that her crimes are the result of infatuation with Reg. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets off, right? Now, all of this, he now, Nico had turned himself in not long after Reg was arrested in Bombay. So he was found and he served it. Reg is now 81 and lives in Adelaide. Mm. To finish up, he did inspire one copycat. Within a year of when he flew back in the wooden box, a Welshman named Brian Robson, who was stuck in Australia, read about it and thought, I could do this too. Yes. So he built a box and with some mates and they said, if Reg Spears can do it, we can do it. So they went to Qantas, got all the details. They got He got in, he got put on the plane and he thought, this is no problem, I'm going to make it. But he was in a smaller box than Reg. <laughs> so oh, no. he couldn't turn or move. At one point he got left on the tarmac upside down once again and he said after a while that becomes very painful because all the blood's running. 22 hours he spent upside down in a crate. Yes. He said it was so bad I didn't know what I was going to do. What he didn't know is the Qantas flight he thought he was on was full so they put him on a Pan-American flight that was going to take a lot longer. It was right. a slower route. And he was also traveling in a hold that wasn't heated and it became problems with breathing. He was getting pains in his elbows and knees and everything. Yep. And he thought he was in complete trouble. And finally he got into put into a warehouse and he tried to turn his torch on and he did, but then he dropped it and he couldn't reach down. And so a freight handler spots the light coming out, rips it open, thinks it's a dead body, comes back with a bunch of people. And... They all start arguing over the legal status of it, of who's going to take it. Yes. But it took three or four of them to take him out of the crate and they had to lay him on his back. But because he'd been in the crate so long, when yes. he, they laid on his back, his legs would still stay up in the position <laughs> and it took them about an hour to get to like forcing wow. them apart. So he was the only one that ever did Tried it. Tried it. And he was lucky because if he hadn't been caught, when he got out, he said, where am I? They said LA because he'd gone the long way. Yeah. And he was going to go over the North Ice Cap if he had that happen, oh, and they don't reckon he would make it. That would have been the end of it. And that's the story of Red What a story. Spears. Unbelievable. Uh, where is he today? He's 81 in Adelaide. Well, get him on. <laughs> He's coming in <laughs> to confirm a few of those facts. You've done it again. That's a ripper. Who knew from the world of the javelin? <laughs> exactly. You could toss up one of the great sporting stories of all time. <laughs> Thank you. Titus O'Reilly. If you're interested, we do have a membership program. That gets you a bonus podcast every week. And to maybe incentivize you to join up, here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Well, that was the first remote. It was a pool cue. I remember seeing someone changing yeah, just change the TV. Change the TV channels with a pool cue. And then my grandfather, yeah. he actually had the very first remote. He goes, come and have a look at this, son. And I go in, and there he is, and he's in front of the old-style TV. Yeah. It's like the size of a fridge, right? He's got the old, on its side. He's got the old-style yeah. TV. And coming out of the TV is, you know, the old, the curly phone cord? Yeah. The curly <laughs> phone cord, which connects to a box the size of a shoebox. Yeah. Which has, like, two buttons. Up, down. On, on off, and up, down. <laughs> Have a look at this, son. Look at this. Unbelievable. He thought it was the... So, see, the main reason people had kids was so they didn't have to get up to change the TV. Yeah, correct. They'd, my parents, they'd go, go change the channel. The same grandfather, who Fred Carew, what a legend he was, 
having breakfast one day. He lived in Queensland. Yeah. Heard a bit of a crack and the roof caved in because all his home brew was so heavy and it had fallen, <laughs> it had fallen through the roof and it just started smashing around us. Like, I've never seen a man so devastated. I, and also I imagine the wife was not thrilled with yeah, that. No, not, not a great day. The highs <laughs> and the lows. The, the first ever remote. And now it's raining homebrew. And that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bizarre Plus program. Simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bizarreplus.com.